0: If you haven't had Instagram's algorithm suggest the account Sit With Wit, I suggest you write a letter to their manager. The woman behind and in front, I guess, of this account is Dr. Whitney Goodman. Whitney is a clinical therapist who uses her platform to help us understand and identify things that impact our mental health, often when we don't even realise it. In this episode, I get to sit down and dive into the concept of toxic positivity, in which Whitney herself has become somewhat of an expert. Whitney has written the book, Toxic Positivity. This book was birthed during COVID and is the culmination of her years as a therapist and what she's seen personally through that, but also what she's seen on social media in regard to toxic language, inspirational quotes, which we love, greener grass, and the constant search for good vibes only. Whitney walks us through the understanding, identification, and impact that toxic positivity can not only just have on ourselves and our own mental health and self-esteem, but also that of those around us. Whitney, thank you so much for joining me. It is such a coup to get you on. I literally finished your book last night and was in awe sitting up in bed and particularly the last chapter, which I've got a question about a bit later, but that last chapter of like reminder about, you know, who we actually are in this world was really sort of home hitting for me and and I think was the perfect way to end the book. But uh, for our listeners, are you able to tell us a bit about what your book is on, which is, you know, you can see it in the background there. It quite explicitly says toxic positivity. And and are you able to introduce us to what toxic positivity is and, and how it works?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for reading the book and I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Toxic positivity is this cultural force, really, that is an unrelenting pressure to be happy or be pursuing positivity and happiness all the time, no matter what the circumstances are. And this is something that we can use against ourselves or other people.
0: That is, I think that was the core thing that, uh, and when I wrote to you, I was like, oh my gosh, like we are always constantly trying to find that, that happiness. or we are always thinking that the grass is greener on the other side and it is, A constant struggle and I think we forget that we have that the human emotions are so range and happiness or joy is just one or two of them and we forget about the rest (laughs) and feeling the rest when it comes to toxic positivity both external and internal and I guess also you know in the external we are putting that on others what are some common sort of phrases or or uh, ways of talking or uh, sharing, I guess, toxic positivity with ourselves and each other, but also some less common ones?
1: Yeah. So the ones that you've probably heard are like, just be happy, just smile. Um, It could always be worse. Just be grateful. At least it's not X. And then some of those really common ones you hear, like, um, everything happens for a reason. Time heals all wounds. Uh, Your thoughts create your reality. They're really all these just, like, short phrases that lack any nuance. And people just kind of, like, say them off the cuff, I think, because we've been taught to do that. and, And we think it should be helpful.
0: Yeah, that's so true. It's kind of like the, hi, how are you? And it's like good, and it's never—it's purely surface. And we've been taught that that sort of politeness is what we we should be using, and as a commodity within society, in order to either move up, down, you know, respect other people. But when in fact it it does it, like you said, and like you talk in the book, it does cause that internal riff or chafing, which is really obviously toxic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah yeah you know it, it's coming from a good place right
0: yeah 100 percent. we are relatively new i guess to this this topic of toxic positivity and this and i don't think like you said we're not totally aware of the nuance of it and the way in which we we don't actually go that step further and there is no compassion or empathy in in some of those common phrases like uh time heals all wounds or i've definitely been guilty in saying everything happens for a reason and I wanted to ask because I think I think it was maybe five years ago when I first sort of saw on Instagram and that is, you know, that is a huge driver from, for this book from, I mean, you run a wonderful Instagram and, and as a resource, which we're so often now turning to Instagram for something palatable and digestible, that sort of helped you write the book. But why is it this relatively new concept to us as individuals and us as a society when, roughly five years ago, we were sort of putting, you know, good vibes only and there was t-shirts and and all sorts of things. And that was what everyone was kind of striving for.
1: So I think this is something that's been around for a very long time. It's just kind of like, shape shifted itself, depending on what's hot at the moment. So it was part of like religion, wellness culture. We see it in like MLMs, all these different areas. And now I think with the rise of social media, uh, we've seen it kind of take a different shape. What I noticed uh, as a therapist, when I got online to market my practice, like in 2018, I was like, wow, this is still out there. I haven't really been confronted with this part of the algorithm. Um, and especially during the pandemic, I, at the start of it, I saw a big resurgence in this, like, we're all in this together. We just have to be positive to get through this. And you had like, you know, for us in the U S we had all these celebrities, like singing in their mansions about keeping a positive attitude. And you're like, Whoa, like we are not in the same boat, (laughs) you know? that it was this whole new focus on positive thinking as a way to manage anything bad going on, even a global pandemic.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the core things that we saw or big things that we saw during the global pandemic was use this time to amp your exercise up or complete those, those hobbies or find a hobby, you know, get in touch with painting or learn a guitar and, I think it's only hitting me somewhat now, the actual effect that's had. I mean, this podcast launched during the pandemic because we thought, you know, I've got so much time on our hands and, and you know, do we use that for binging television shows? Already done that and I've exhausted all the streaming platforms. <laughs> uh, so what do I do? What do I do? I'm not an exercise person totally. I'm not going to, you know, go and get jacked in the garage or... <laughs> pick up a new hobby or anything like that and become somewhat of a renaissance man. So why not, you know, why not turn to something that's going to be positive and put those sort of helpful, positive vibes out there? And I mean, I, you know, like it, this this podcast has definitely been a rocky road of learning and, and organizing and now that we're sort of exiting the pandemic somewhat and sort of learning a new normal, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, okay, uh, self-care needs to be a huge part in this. Like the outputs are great, but self-care is definitely needed. With social media being a core part or, or a driver for your book, why, why did you feel a book, uh, coinciding with your social media page, uh, needed to be sort of something, an output or something that you, you needed to write? Was it For your yourself, was it for your clients, the the world generally?
1: Yeah, I never really planned um, for this to turn into a book. It was something that once I started talking about it, and especially during the pandemic, which is when I started writing the book, when I saw this resurgence, and, and other people have tackled this topic in different ways. But I felt like I had a very Unique perspective as a clinician on how this was impacting our relationships and how we saw ourselves in the world, and you were just talking about like the need to make something positive out of your downtime, right? And I think a lot of us felt that, myself included. Of like, I mean, during the pandemic, I wrote a book, I had a baby, I like just was like, oh well, I'm I'm sitting around, so I'm going to do all this stuff. So I, I personally get the urge. Uh, that we, we sort of had to like look back on this time and be like, well, look what I did with it. Look what I made out of it. And it just seemed like me talking about this on Instagram wasn't enough and that it needed to become something larger, especially once I started researching the topic and found like, especially in the US, this obsession with positivity goes so deep. It's not just like this, social media fad, you know, it's something that's really ingrained in our culture. And I think by way of social media, that is spreading to the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of the the content that people in Australia stream or consume is American and you definitely do not get that. But when you step back from it, you can see how underlying, that positivity dri- or drive for positivity or drive for happiness and joy is is so evident. I mean, even you sort of, you look at TV shows, there's one that I wish I could remember the name of. I was even watching it last night, the latest episode of it last night. I think it's something in Sober or uh, Single Sober Girl or Woman.
1: Okay, Brilliant
0: CV, TV series. I need series. to watch that. Yeah, so good. But um, it, it is you know, somewhat about finding the you, you, the relaxing into the new life or d- discovering her new chapter, but then there's also the drive for purpose and you sort of see that not just be something practical or something like to work towards, but then that slight shift from it being, you know, a nice goal or something that, you know, we do all have a purpose in this world, we're sort of, I don't think we truly discover it until the later end of the, the 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 day, our days, but that is so ingrained and it is also completely ingrained in the Australian culture in a single saying of she'll be right, mate, and, you know, like car breaks down, she'll be right, mate, uh, there's a divorce, she'll be right, mate, like anything Internet connection, she'll be right, mate. <laughs> Headphones, uh, not charging properly, yep. she'll be right, mate. Lost it's the like AirPods. It's it'll be
1: okay, or like, yeah. it's, all, it's all good.
0: Yeah, and there's no ability for sort of that lamenting or that complaining or that, like, being in the moment, essentially, and being like, what the hell? Like, this is so inconvenient. I'm so upset by this. I'm so angered by this. And that's a huge chapter in your book about complaining and, and positively or effectively, sorry, complaining. And truly your book dissects it perfectly and, and opens our eyes to, you know, the, the extent that we don't complain if that, if that, makes sense. So I, I guess without any spoilers to your book, as we want as many people to purchase it and take it up and, and delve into it, are you able to sort of take us through a bit of what effective complaining can actually look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So complaining is something that we all do, but we we sort of add these caveats to it. Or I know I shouldn't complain, but whatever it is. And and I noticed that so many of my clients were doing this in therapy And it's like, this is the place where you come literally to talk about things. So what the research really shows us about complaining is that if you know specifically what you're complaining about, so like the facts, the story, what the issue is, and you know what you want your result to be, which might just be to have somebody listen to you or to vent, it doesn't always mean you want a change. And then you know who can make that happen. When those three things line up, it's much easier to effectively complain, to get your needs met, and to not get stuck in that constant complaint cycle. I think what people find when they don't really know what they're complaining about, they maybe don't know what they want, or they continue going to the wrong person with their complaint who either can't validate them or can't do anything for them, that's when we find that people get really stuck in this complaint loop or their complaining feels draining and not effective.
0: Mm, Yeah. I mean, it's hitting me again in another wave. I think one of the things that you mentioned, well, actually in therapy, I, I am guilty of saying, you know, this, that, and the other, but you know, I know it's going to improve or, but I know it's only temporary, like trying to justify that complaint or that, lamentation. And I mean, like you were saying before, it is through religion, it is through a part of societies previously that lamenting is is a, a thing we're called to do. Like we, we sort of stunt ourselves, I guess, in our range of emotions by just seeking happiness or joy or contentment and not actually feeling that range of either out Offput, vexation, anger, depression, grief, sadness, even, you know, disassociation uh, from an event. And it's really interesting to actually hear what the research is saying around that.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot of shame that happens for people when they feel like, they're complaining and they shouldn't be or that nobody else complains when in reality we all do it. It's a way that we bond with one another. It's it's how we get our needs met and if you never complain, you likely are just trying to be agreeable all the time and never really assert yourself or say what's wrong.
0: Yeah, you're never showing your full personality. You know, like you're never actually, even to your closest friends or family, if you're not complaining, um, you feel like, well, I mean, you feel like you're not sharing as much or you can't sort of share as much because like you said, you're looking at pleasing rather than being a, you know, being one of those people who experiences all emotions and shares your emotions and where you're, you know, where you're at with said event why do we feel shame about sharing complaints or venting with people that we care about or people that we, you know, we pay for our problems like therapists to, to walk through?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the cultural force of toxic positivity, right? Is that we have learned from a young age that being happy And agreeable and not complaining is rewarded. And it's often rewarded socially. You know, happy people are easier to deal with. You don't have to fix anything for them. You don't have to listen, but that's not life. And so I think a lot of people are afraid they're going to get labeled like, you know, a negative Nancy or somebody who is a burden or annoying if they complain or that if they're too much of a burden to people, they're going to be abandoned. And that's a big fear that I hear, you know, with my clients who are um, going through illness or they're disabled, or they're going through a lot of grief or hardship in their life is like, I can't share with the people in my life because they're going to get tired of me. They're going to reject me. And then I'll have no one. And that's such a terrible way. I would never want anyone in my life to feel that way
0: yeah and I think that you know like like you were saying the the cultural underlying of it is we don't want to be the person that bitches we don't want to and I think we you know somewhat haven 't actually understood the definition, kind of like boundaries we don 't really know how great boundaries are and and drawing the line between this is a boundary for work, this is a boundary for personal, this is a boundary for self preservation but also this is a boundary, like this is where bitching begins and, or this is where complaining begins. This is where, and this is sort of the remit for it. Arguably there is a bit of a gray area and a bit of a crossover, but then this is bitching and, and things like that. And I think it's really interesting, you know, to actually understand that just as positivity is negative, so is the converse of, of not complaining, or or rather yeah the adjunct
1: yeah absolutely and and there's a lot of nuance there right that you're referring to that like there's a really big difference between someone who is grieving who is in pain who is struggling with something big and someone who just everyday is like oh the weather is gross i didn't like my lunch you know that i can see like yeah okay that gets annoying but we've sort of like put all of that behavior into one big pile. And what I want people to do is like really divide it out and be like, is this really complaining or is this person just going through a hard time? Are they negative or are they grieving and and sick and going through loss, you know, whatever it might be?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we uh, I guess, make the allowance for, like you were just referring to, is grief. I mean, there's the the commonly understood... I can never remember whether it's five or seven stages of grief. I and, think it's five. Yeah. I don't know where the seven comes from. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we widely accept that there's anger, there's sadness, there's, you know, there's regret, there's, you know, and I, I guess we've also we are also only sort of just understanding that grief doesn't diminish over time, but your capability of grief or your capacity for grief builds over time.
1: Right. Right. With grief and toxic positivity, I mainly see it showing up in the sense that people want your grief to be time limited Um, And they sort of get to this place of like, okay, but you should be over it right now by now, or you should look on the bright side or they wouldn't want to see you sad. And it's like, sort of after the funeral ends or whatever the the losses, you get this little window. And then after that, people are like, all right, time's up. (laughs) It's time to move on. And that's where we see these platitudes come in.
0: Yeah, I mean I I finished watching I think with most of the world and just like that and the you know the the revive of sex in the city uh and no I mean it's no spoilers there's so many articles out there that that do say it that big dies but Carrie I noticed I think it was at the school event you know she said I, I, I'm going to play the dead husband card and the fact that we so- like there's that's even part of the script or the fact that she isn't feels like that she needs to say explicitly the dead husband card and sort of as if there's a limited amount of cards, like you said, and, and putting a time limit on that.
1: Right. And that people kind of get to decide whether that's a valid excuse or not. Or, you know, if you're, it's, it's like people will say like, Oh, I can't believe you're still crying about that. Or you're still upset and I think people feel a pressure to like put a bow on their experience and and move on.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, arguably, we see that with things like colds. We see that with things like even conversations or a, a film. You see, you know, there's the slow build up, and then there's the the pivot or the the part where it's like the aha moment, and then it it you know falls back down and and. I think we're so used to that narrative that we don't actually, we don't translate, well, we translate it across to other areas of our life when we are as human beings so much more complex than a simple storyline or a simple moment, like you said, that, you know, that it should have a curve and then have the plateau and and somewhat return to regular life.
1: Exactly. I think that's how we feel about all types of pain, that it's like the event happens There's the time where you get better and then it's over because humans like really neat stories with a clear beginning and an end. And it makes sense why we want it to be that way. It's just like life is not that way.
0: Yeah. And essentially toxic positivity is neat, right? Like, yes,
1: yes. It's very clean and happy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's tied up in a bow, good vibes only, or, you know, uh, don't be a wet blanket and and tiny little, like you said, that, you know, things that we are so uh, easy to roll off, that so easily roll off the tongue or, or off the cuff and part of our vernacular are so degrading and causing and reinforcing this concept of abandonment, which I think for a lot of people, they may not even associate toxic positivity or the lack of being able to complain or truly, you know, even just confide in a loved one about what they're experiencing and the range of their experience.
1: Right. Yeah. I think people think toxic positivity is just like a list of these things that you should and shouldn't say. And that's true, but it's also like you're saying this pressure that like, I shouldn't share things. Um, I need to always appear a certain way. I need to get over this quickly. It's, we have to think of it more as like this force that we're kind of operating within. And the antidote to, to that is like stepping out of that. and Just like you're saying, like being a human who has a wide variety of emotions and changes day to day. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, Brene Brown's latest book is about 86 I think, or yeah. 84 or 86. As you can tell, I am not <laughs> great with numbers. <laughs> the number
1: doesn't
0: matter. It's okay. <laughs> uh, human emotions and identifying what they are and, and, you know, how they interact with us as beings and us as f- everyday functioning in any capacity, uh, people within society and within our personal lives. When it comes to toxic positivity, what does the research and, and also your experience as a therapist, what is the what is the impact on our brains and the way in which you, you've you spoken about, you know, we sort of shell everything up and it is always the but. But like you said, the nuance goes even deeper within that. What does the research say from, you know, the way in which our brain fires or, or comprehends, you know certain things and events.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple different areas of research that I can speak to and the first is that when we look at using positive affirmations or telling ourselves to believe certain things, what the research shows is that if I tell myself something that isn't tr- that doesn't feel true to me, that I don't think is accurate, It actually ends up making people with low self-esteem feel worse because there is this discrepancy between what I think I should be feeling and what I actually believe to be true. And so that can happen when people say these things to us, when we say them to ourselves. The other thing we see is that toxic positivity ultimately forces us to suppress our emotions. And the research is pretty clear on emotional suppression, that the more you suppress an emotion, typically the more it intensifies and the stronger it gets. So if I'm trying to suppress some type of painful feeling, it's probably going to come out in other ways, um, even if I don't recognize that. So by disrupting my sleep, maybe picking up other habits to do with eating or restriction, uh, drinking, using substances, and we can see all of this come from emotional suppression. The other thing that happens is it inhibits connection. So if I feel like you're not struggling ever and you're telling me I shouldn't be struggling, what I'm gonna do then is conceal everything and pretend, right? Which is what a lot of us do. It's what I was doing in my own. No personal brainer,
0: life. right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then we're not going to connect. So we we totally miss out on this shared communal feeling that happens within struggle. And I think anybody listening, if you think about the relationships that you have the deepest connection in, I would bet that you've been through something difficult or helped each other through something, or you know that something about that person that has connected you in that way. And so deep relationships aren't usually built just in happy moments. They're built through struggle and when we avoid talking about that kind of stuff, we totally miss out on that piece. And I think as a therapist, that was the biggest area where I saw positivity becoming really dangerous to us.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I can personally attest to the bonds that my family has together from facing hardship and, and- Trials and tribulations, and you know, it does make you so much closer and more like you have a sense of belonging. But I think you know, like like you said, there is that, and like we were talking about before, that there is still that. It's almost human to fear, to have the fear of abandonment, abandonment. and um, and I think that's, I think it's interesting that you can have such a close relationship, but still have that. Niggling doubt, churning in you know in your mind. Before, when you were talking about, um, you know the 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 about positive affirmations and and those sorts of things, you actually just recently, I think it was yesterday, posted on your Instagram, and, and I should say it, the Instagram is um, sit with it, sit with
1: wit, exactly.
0: Yes. Oh, sit with wit. Yes, um, and it, it it truly is brilliant. And uh, and you posted about positive affirmations yesterday, and and, and that you that that difference between you know someone who is within the right space for positive affirmations, but then also someone who isn't in the right space, and the the incongruency or the the complete contrast that can, that can have to someone's well being there was an episode, I think it was either a year, maybe 18 months ago on uh, Jamila Jamil's Iway with Dr. Deepika Chopra. I'm going to, apologies uh, for butchering the name, but she focuses on, you know, happiness and the the process of happiness and and all of that. And, And also by sort of destigmatizing stigmatizing or, or deconstructing and, and breaking down toxic positivity and, the, and those, those ramifications, but she talked about the brain. One thing that I found really interesting was she talked about the brain as a predictive tool uh, or a predictive organ in the sense that it, uh, you know, you think you think about or you start to eat something, and your brain looks at. You know, it looks at the receipts and it's like, okay, how much insulin do we need to release to digest this? And she uh, spoke about how positive affirmations or those sorts of things can be a great thing when used at the right stage of, you know, your brain looks at the receipts and is like, yep, this lines up, this is true. Uh, but when you're not in the right state or you are in a, a mentally vulnerable state, it's like, hmm, we see a real there's a there's a chafing here. So this exactly. is a lie. Yeah. And and we need to we need to stick with what we we know. And and the idea of that storing of that fear or storing of that emotion or or those those receipts being read and your brain kind of just leaves you on red with a positive affirmation. How do you know, and this, this may be, you know, asking a magician to, to reveal how they perform a trick, but how do you know when the right time is for a positive affirmation?
1: I think what we have to really consider is like what feels realistic or true to us in that moment. And I talk about this in the book that sometimes putting, um, a word in there that just makes something sound possible can be helpful. So instead of saying like, I love myself, you might want to say like, I am trying to love myself. I am working to love myself. I can show myself love by doing X. And so when you make something actionable and, and feeling like you're working towards it, like it's possible, I find that that feels a lot more tangible and real than just saying like, you know, some people will do these affirmations of like, I am wealthy. Um, I am deserving of love. And it's like, but if you're not like, just, I mean, for some people that works, I find that the research on that is really, really slim. There's not a lot of proof that that's very effective. And so trying to really get at like, what do I want to be true and how can I make that something that I'm working towards something actionable?
0: And is there a fine, I guess, you know, part of that is, you know, that, that, uh, rephrasing of it. So it not toxic, but is there a fine line between sort of, you know, I am willing or I w- I am wanting to love myself or that, you know, rephrasing it. Is there a fine line or is it a bit great graded in sort of setting that toxic goal?
1: So you get to decide what is toxic positivity for you. And a lot of that it becomes, positivity can become toxic when it feels very dismissive or like you're denying something of what you're feeling. So what I don't like for people to do is, let's say you're crying, you feel terrible about yourself, maybe you've just been broken up with or whatever it is, and you're just sitting there saying like, I love myself, I am worthy, I am perfect, over and over, And but you're really upset about something. In that moment, I would be like, okay, you're kind of gaslighting yourself, you're telling yourself to feel something that you're not really feeling, and I would instead want to orient attention towards the distress and be like, okay, this is valid that I feel this way, something has happened, and then later, kind of moving into this space of like, right now, I don't feel lovable And I can still show myself respect. Um, I can still do this for myself and trying to hold both things at the same time.
0: Mm. You touched on it just then about gaslighting and, and gaslighting ourselves. And we had on last season the brilliant uh, Dr. Romani and she introduced us to gaslighting and sort of all its, its nuances, all its various forms and the external and the internal gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And I want to know or I want to ask what is the, the relationship and you sort of you did briefly touch on that between gaslighting and toxic positivity and yeah. how we do it to others, but also how we do it to ourselves.
1: So toxic positivity can become like gaslighting when it's used routinely over time to deny someone's experience or your own, to tell you that what you're feeling isn't real, or try to convince you of something um, else when you know what you're feeling to be true and factual. And I see this come up a lot um with people who have experienced like racism or other types of prejudice where we might tell them like, can't we all just love each other? It's not that bad. Be grateful that you don't live during this time in the world. Things were worse then. And you're basically telling someone like, I hear you. I hear your experience, but I don't really believe it. I don't think it's that bad. So can you just shut up? And we do this (laughs) to ourselves too, you know, of like, you could be like, especially people who are maybe in an abusive relationship or going through something like that, that they say like, well, he, he pays my bills or he keeps a roof over my head, or it's not really that bad. And you try to put a positive spin on stuff that, you know, to be really terrible um, and that is really actually happening. And if you do that to yourself or to someone else enough over time, you can really force them to question their reality.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we saw it a lot and it it eventually was called out in the Black Lives Matter sort of big explosion uh, at the beginning of the pandemic with the marches and the uh, the painting of black lives matter down i can't remember i'm sure you would uh, yeah yeah
1: they did that in uh in washington dc they did that in a lot of cities but yeah
0: yeah but that was like the big moment of recognizing it within the i guess the american institution and and then of course you know coming back to social media everyone was posting a black tile and yes And, you know, it was kind of in solidarity, but it was like, we see you, we, we get that this is a big issue, but it's, you know, it's kind of like, um, that video, that satirical video of that girl who goes, who sort of did, uh, organizations during pride month. And she's like, hi, gay, uh, which is just anytime I feel down, I watch that video. I think it's just hilarious or anytime I need a good laugh. It's it is kind of that it, within the realm of toxic positivity. It's almost that toxic support where it, it it has that it has that lifespan, like we're talking about with with grief, and to know that that further gaslights and further marginalize those communities who are being affected by said issue that everyone is posting about or talking about in such a surface level is kind of shocking. I mean, when there was the, you know, the the pushback on everyone posting the black tile and the fact that then, you know, when you went to your discovery feed, it was all just black and there was no ability to sort of see the facts or what's actually happening and things like that. It it really disables our not just our understanding of a, an event, but also the deep sort of roots an event or an emotion can go to and the experience. And I think that that was really interesting. I mean, I definitely fell prey to posting a black tile. And, oh, same. And, yeah, because I think in the moment you were like, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to to uh, barrack for the other people of our world. But then, you know, once that came out, it was like, oh, shit, we've all just been cancel cultured. Um, <laughs> in the most brilliant way. Why did you put at the end of your book, it, it, uh, like I was saying before, it did feel really full circle and place that final bit of, it was almost like framing it, uh, uh, artwork, placing that chapter on only human, like that, this is who we, this is You know, our capabilities, our capabilities Our, uh, Brene Brown talks about our tank The percentage of our tank in in any relationship There should really be a full tank, a 100% tank Because someone might be functioning at 80% And the other person and someone needs to be Which allows for someone to be focusing at 20% um, And she talks about being quite open with her husband about that Particularly, you know, from a work-personal-life balance this context and and recontextualizing our human experience and we've you know sort of talked throughout this episode about it why was it important for you and and I guess why did you place that at the very end and and arguably not at the beginning about prefacing that all that you're going to talk about in this book and all that you're going to explore the research the the cultural norms the our misunderstanding our personal our like our internal and external the gaslighting why what like what why was your decision to place it at the end and and sort of that whole chapter at the beginning
1: yeah you know I think that what people are striving to do with toxic positivity is to sort of hack the human experience and figure out a way out of feeling any type of pain, discomfort, and also trying to make everything they want happen, right? It's this way of like asserting control. And to put that in the beginning of the book, I felt like was too much for people Um, to show them kind of like, this is what you're trying to do. Here's maybe why it's not working. And then sort of present this reality of like, look, We are all humans. We are all going to go through, some of us more than others, hardship, struggle, bad moods, bad days, whatever, throughout our life. And that I think if we can all just admit that that might be out of our control and to some extent we want it to be, that life is a lot easier and more enjoyable and more fulfilling when we stop trying to control every single thing. And this is coming from someone that really wishes she could control everything
0: yeah i mean i am a a severe control freak i'm i'm very anal retentive when it comes to not just having things in order i mean i've i am embarking on my masters in brain and mind sciences and you should see my calendar i've spent the last few weeks perfecting my calendar and alerting me a week before when an assessment is due but then in that alert having the time that it's the latest time it's due by the 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 very brief overview of what the um of what the assessment is and attaching the assessment rubric and a template like absolutely preparing my almost uh uh you know sort of hurricane preparing or a a twister comp like preparing having creating that you know bunker that has the supermarket lines of canned soup and flashlights and candles and batteries and sleeping bags and it never works i was saying in or it doesn't always work rather i was saying in a a conversation recently with uh one of australia's archibald finalists uh kathana salvarish that I spent twenty minutes or forty minutes in Aldi, like our. Um, uh-huh. Do you guys have Aldi over in America? Yeah, we do yeah. actually. Yeah, brilliant for you know getting discounted and, and great goods, and and I was wandering around their discount bins or their specials bins, pondering this environmental pack of straws, and and had to call. I literally had to call in a friend and be like is this going to change my life? Is this going to be the final piece of the puzzle of finally feeling organised and being on that road to success and being where I, you know, I I should be at at this age and, you know, finding complete circle, I guess, and and not actually acknowledging that it's not going to. A simple straw or a simple pack of five straws (laughs) is not going to. And by the way, I've I've probably only ever used one once or twice. And the taste was, uh, I feel like they came pre-molded. It definitely definitely felt like there was something off and I wasn't receiving the full flavor of the drink. And like you were saying before, I think we absolutely do gaslight, gaslight ourselves with that positive sort of thought or that positive action of like, I'm going to schedule my whole year and it's going to be, I'm going to know when I need to be, where I need to be, when I need to be, what I need to have prepared for that. I've personally embraced chaos. I think I've recently, uh, leaned into the fact that that is part of my brand is, is the chaotic sort of nature of life. And to the point where, every now and then i will just click red to all of my emails and text messages and notifications because i just can't deal with you know the numbers continually rising and and not being able to you know defeat those numbers like it's an angry bird episode and uh and and that you know i i have to just justify that and 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 sort of be like if it's important, they'll get back to me, or they'll recontact me. They'll call me. They'll find me some other way. If it's important, or if I've missed the event, uh, I'll receive the minutes. <laughs> is there toxic positivity? And I guess there, you know, that comes down to, like you said, our own sort of identification and what it means to us personally. But is there toxic positivity in justification of? Something Is that, you know, around that butt or that she'll be okay or, yeah, no, I'm good, I'm fine. When you're, you know, thinking about suicide or you, you know, had a really rough... You had the Bridget Jones's sort of moment where it's seeing all by myself with a tub of ice cream absolutely bawling your eyes out the night before.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on how you're using it and what the significance is for you. You know, it can be comforting for some people in moments to say like, I'm going to be okay. Um, this is going to get better. But there are also times where we use that positivity, like you said, to cover up or diminish what we're actually feeling and possibly stop us from even accessing help or resources Um, or you know going to the doctor or calling a therapist whatever it is because you're just telling yourself that everything's fine even when it's not
0: moving forward slightly into sort of the practical and how we can sort of better equip ourselves support ourselves and support those around us like providing you know environments where complaining is is allowed and is welcomed uh and you know that sort of judgment free zone or realizing that you can complain to your therapist uh, or those that are professionally or clinically supporting you when it comes to, you know, social media is such a big beast in, in, I think almost everyone's lives. And I, you know, part of me, I, I can't even understand those uh, celebrities or those people who are like, I don't have, you know, a social media account. That's just not for me. And I guess, you know, um, will never understand the kind of lives that they lead, but, uh, uh I mean, you never know. <laughs> um, uh, but when it comes to social media and, you know, algorithms and the curating of one's feed by what you like or what you follow or what you comment on or bookmark, Chris Sweeney spoke, uh, about, you know, his, uh, sort of body image and his, you know, understanding of himself and, and realizing sort of coming to the point in his life now where his Instagram will occasionally have in the discovery feed people of uh, pictures of hot men and, and really sort of like toned men. And whilst he's like, that is nice. I really enjoy seeing that this, you know, sporadic thing. He tries to remove them from that feed and sort of say, not interested because of the effect that that has on his own sort of thought process and emotional processing of those thoughts or those instances. When it comes to social media and, you know, thinking of Instagram as that's probably the primarily used uh, platform if you're under 50, is there a way that we can practically support ourselves in redefining that algorithm or understanding, you know, this isn't toxic positivity for me, but I can see that that would be for others. Therefore, I'm not going to post it or put that caption or comment that. Is there any practical tips or tricks that you would suggest not to tie a neat bow around it like we want to do, but to be able to support us, I guess, untie that bow and leave the package open?
1: Yeah. What you just mentioned, I think is a great tip of like really just tapping into What do I feel like when I see this content? You know, your social media experience is controlled by you. And I think that's something that we forget that yes, the algorithm is complicated and they show us stuff all the time, but you can mute, you can block, you can unfollow, you can engage with content that is supportive to you. So if you're scrolling through your feed and you notice that repeatedly an account or a certain type of thing, starts to make you feel like bad about yourself or beat yourself up might not be the best thing to follow. Now, of course we can follow people that we don't totally agree with or who maybe cause us to think different things. I think that can be a positive experience as well, but this changes depending on the season of your life, right? Like I know when I was pregnant I didn't really want to follow all of these like influencers sharing clothes because just made me feel sad. I couldn't wear any of them, and like it, it depends on where you're at in your life. That don't be afraid to be like, eh, I don't want to follow therapists on social media right now, and maybe in a month I will, and so I'll go back to that. But it's it's okay to curate it in a way that fits you and what you need.
0: Mm. And then. Sort of, you know, uh, I guess, like I said, you know, commenting or, you know, sharing on stories or things like that in support of other people that might be, you know, struggling with something or whatever it might be. Is there a way that we can practically do that? I guess sort of similar bit to sort of curating or, or actually taking that step back and being like, how would I feel? But then also, if I were to share this with someone, how would they feel? I guess what's the translation of that or the, you know, the cross comparison of that to practical everyday sort of circumstances where we may just be like, oh, it's all right. It'll, it'll, it'll end or, you know, you'll get through this or those sorts of things. I think one of the big things, you know, coming sort of around to grief as well is not knowing what to say when someone dies close to someone you love and that sort of, being okay with not being able to say something that fixes a situation?
1: Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest reasons why people use toxic positivity is this inability to sit with difficult feelings or feeling like I need to fix this. I don't know what to say. And I, um, for anyone looking for that, I definitely go into in the book a lot of different strategies for different situations. But the kind of practical thing you can always remember is like, how can I validate or seek understanding in this moment? And so validation might sound like that's really hard. Um, I'm sorry that you're going through that. That isn't fair, you know, whatever it is. And then seeking understanding is really just trying to get the person to talk about their experience and what they're going through. So what's the hardest part for you? What are you worried about? Uh, You know, what can I do to help you work through this? Do you want to vent? Do you want advice? And not being afraid to ask questions rather than just assuming that we know what the other person wants.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, on paper, it is so easy to assume and, and to sort of, place in our lives, but I guess, you know, it is, is really quite hard in that spur of the moment where it's like, oh, uh, they've just come to me with this information. And I mean, maybe by text, it's a lot easier to, <laughs> to sort of have a moment and, and think about what you're going to say. But in conversation, it is really hard to fall into old patterns that we have been sociologically primed to put out, right? Um, I just wanted to say I this episode has been and this conversation has been incredibly eye-opening and and for me it's been a wonderful opportunity to have finished the book and to be sort of asking some, some of those questions that I sort of noted to be, you know, mm, I wonder about this or I wonder about the practical implications of this and and I think that anyone who's listening and wants to... Buy Well, I urge everyone to buy your book because uh, I think it was, I can't remember the the magazines, but it's been described as not just self-helping, but society helping and vulnerable and a whole bunch of things, which I completely subscribe to. It was really eye-opening. But if you're not a reader, you've also done the audio book, which is, I did purchase that as well. And that was, you know, I... I'm embarking on listening to that a second and, you know, after reading it, listening to it another time, a second time through and, uh, and consuming it even deeper. But your Instagram is, is fantastic as well. If, if, you know, books and audiobooks are, are something difficult because you do go into a lot of what you do in the, or talk about in the book from, you know, what you put out on Instagram, as well as it being this sort of self fulfilling sort of circle where it is like it's in, fluence the book and the book influences it and it's sort of been this whole sort of cyclical notion but i just wanted to say a huge thank you for coming on the podcast and helping myself and and my listener our listeners sort of understand the role that po- toxic positivity plays not just within ourselves but also within those we interact with on a micro and macro scale
1: of course thank you so much for having me i appreciate it and thank you for reading the book
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give us a rating. If you want to see more content, head over to my Instagram account at Samuel J. Hockey. I have recently changed that. And if you want to see a video about why I changed that, aka my personal mental health and spinning plates, you're welcome to ask. I'll see you there.